Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Dr. Rishi Desai. You know, whenever we ask guests on Raise the Line about the biggest changes in healthcare during COVID, the use of telehealth and telemedicine is always at the top of the list. Aside from the need to keep patients and providers safe, a combination of regulatory relief, reimbursement changes, and new technologies are giving telemedicine a bigger and bigger role in healthcare in the U.S. really than ever before. Here to help us assess the impact of telehealth during COVID, discuss what the future holds, and tell us about Telehealth Awareness Week coming up September 19th to 25th is Ann Mon Johnson, CEO of the American Telemedicine Association. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So I'd like to just first start with your background. You know, you earned a master's in healthcare administration, worked for WebMD, among many other healthcare companies before coming to the American Telemedicine Association. What drew you to the healthcare sector in the first place? Well, um, I've been at this for a while. And I think that one of the real attractions was that this was an industry at large that just has so many opportunities for improvement. So I got my master's in healthcare administration, but I also got my MBA in finance and among other things, joined a early stage company that was focused on data and software for hospitals to do planning and marketing. And this was about the time that hospitals realized that just because you were a nonprofit did not mean that you were supposed to lose money. So taking some of the best of what happens in the business world and bringing it to healthcare was, was a big motivator. Um, and then I started a company with some friends in 2000, and uh, that was focused on helping consumers make better decisions about their healthcare using data and decision support tools. And so that company and then two others subsequently are how I've spent most of my time. And what's really driven me in that is that I think that healthcare can be very confusing, uh, not particularly satisfying if you're a patient or a consumer. There's a lot of general confusion because it's not put in terms that make sense for us as users. So um, that's really been my goal. That's really helpful. And and that confusion, I think, continues and, and has obviously gotten a lot worse during COVID as well. With telemedicine on the rise, I'm just so curious to hear, like, what are the priorities of the ATA right now, especially in light of what you just said in terms of clearing up confusion and how to get good health care? Well, it's a great question. And when I joined the ATA at the beginning of 2018, and you, you hear that my background was in startups, coming to an association that had been around for over 25 years, really wanted to focus on why we were here. So pre-pandemic, the why we were here was to ensure that people get care where and when they need it, while knowing that it was safe, effective, and appropriate, and enabling the system to do more good for more people. And realizing at the same time that before the pandemic, we had, as evidenced by things like the Dartmouth Atlas, there was just this uneven distribution of healthcare services that your geography really defined your healthcare destiny. And to me, that's just wrong. As a country that spends as much as we do on healthcare, that's just wrong. So I saw telehealth as really an opportunity of meeting people where they are and really expanding our capacity to treat more people because we don't have enough physicians and you can only use technology to bridge the issue of access. So that was really a driver. And then the pandemic hit and um, what had been sort of, oh, trust me, telemedicine is really good became 
a household word. People were talking about telemedicine all the time. And so our priorities, which again were formulated pre-pandemic were to ensure that people had access and they had choice and they had high satisfaction, that we were really agnostic when it came to telehealth modalities like device and venue and so forth. And that we wanted to really ensure that we use technology to make sure that we reached underserved and at-risk populations, which was a problem, again, way before the pandemic. Now within the ATA, our focus in the middle of all of this from a policy perspective is to ensure that number one, telehealth is not viewed as a pandemic only tool. So, you know, it's very easy for all of us when we're back into what we consider our normal lives that we revert back to old behaviors. And so we don't want that to be the case. We want telemedicine changes and reforms to be made permanent. And then the second is to ensure that telehealth is really used to address this notion of basically systemic racism that we're now having national conversations about. You know, you mentioned just now the idea of using telemedicine to make sure that care is safe, uh, effective, and appropriate. Do you hear common maybe misunderstandings or myths around telemedicine that might be worth clearing up for folks that don't believe that it's safe, effective, and appropriate? Well, it's interesting because, again, prior to the pandemic, the, the myths that I heard was somehow telemedicine was second-class medicine that it wasn't as good as face-to-face. And so, you know, we were talking a little bit about this whole notion that we have an edifice complex. We have a bias towards physicality in healthcare, and yet it's not necessary all the time. You as a physician don't have to lay hands on someone to really come to some conclusion about what might be the right course of action for them as a patient. So, That's been a pervasive myth, and it's a little bit of romanticizing of what healthcare is, and and yet we see things like remote monitoring, where as a physician, you can't possibly monitor 12 people at once simultaneously, whatever the number is, and yet with technology now, you can monitor literally dozens, if not hundreds of people, and use a dashboard in that regard. So I think that we have plenty of evidence that it's safe and it's effective, And so part of the work that we have to do is both inform at the policy, the regulators, the legislators at the federal and state level, but also to promote it amongst Americans so that they know that at any day, the ability to use telemedicine might be taken from them because Congress doesn't act. You and I both have used the word telemedicine and telehealth. Mm -hmm. Do you mind just laying out exactly kind of what the two terms mean and, and maybe what some nuances are between them? Well... I I would, except I I really shy away from that. And I'll tell you why, because first of all, we define telehealth as the ability to effectively connect individuals and their healthcare providers when in-person care is not necessary or it's not possible. And likewise, providers can work with other providers when in-person is just not possible. So that to me is the general rubric. There's a lot of folks who spend time slicing and dicing what telehealth is versus telemedicine and digital health and virtual care and virtual medicine. And at the end of the day, as a consumer or as a lawmaker, I don't really care. I want to make sure that the standards of care are maintained. And as an advocacy focus, I want to make sure that clinicians have access to this modality of care, that telehealth is viewed as health. 
So getting too caught up in the definitions I've found has not been a very fruitful exercise. Given what you just said about lawmakers in particular and the, and the potential risk of some of these regulations being turned back, what is, what is your thinking on why that might happen? You know, in the sense of, you know, if we're seeing all these wonderful positives come out of the expansion of folks being able to practice cross state lines and whatnot, what, what are the main arguments for why it might get rolled back? And what are your thoughts on, on mitigants to those arguments? So the, the first thing to appreciate is from the federal level, there are laws, regulations that were put in place 14 years before the iPhone was invented. So this idea that for a telehealth visit to be reimbursed by the federal government, you had to be in a specific venue and your physician had to do a specific thing. And it, it, it's just arcane. It's absolutely ridiculous. So we have every indication that the Biden administration and previously the Trump administration supported the permanent availability of telehealth. At a federal level, we're really focused on what's called 1834M. And this is a very important piece of law that actually needs to be put to bed once and for all. And then the other is that we've learned that not only did telehealth serve to help people stay safe and at home, but in many instances, it really enabled people to get care when they otherwise would not have been able to get care. So look at mental health services in the US. I think it was 50% of counties in the US don't have a mental health provider. And yet one out of five Americans pre-pandemic had a mental health issue. The idea of trying to meet all of that need and that growing need physically one-on-one -on -one is just, it's not doable. And so what we saw was a huge surge in telemental health services. And with that, we saw a lot of satisfaction with the quality of the services, with the quality of the visits. The no-show rates dropped precipitously. So I think, you know, while our bias is towards in-person and our bias is on physicality, and we have a predominantly fee-for-service system, the right thing to do is to get people to be able to use care so that they can seek it where and when they need it. And so the objections are typically around cost or that it's you know more fraud and abuse or it's not as high a quality. And, and each of those we refute categorically. You did mention obviously the ability of telehealth and telemedicine to address the economic disparities that we see in the US, uh, sometimes based on race and ethnicity as well. Are there some examples that you've seen uh, that have come out of the last 18 months that, that you'd wanna share with the audience? We really believe that you cannot solve for access without using telehealth, right? You just can't reach as many people as you want. So as you look at some of the, the levers that might be pulled associated with telehealth, there's legislation pending now with a $65 billion down payment, we call it on broadband. That's obviously important. The whole notion of connectivity is important. And so you're seeing a lot of innovation where buses would have hotspots that they would bring to parking lots and people would be able to innovate in that regard. But then the next level is devices and not being able to have sufficient access to devices. So again, a lot of innovation there in terms of tablets, people, driving up into parking lots of their physician office or the hospital and getting tablets so that they could actually communicate and receive services. 
Um, the third is this whole notion of literacy, and that's cultural, it's digital, it's technical. And these are all really important issues. You can have a great clinician, but if they are not grounded in some of the barriers or are not able to adequately communicate with their patient, you know, just because they can't get them to turn on the device, that's a problem. And it's, again, if you take a consumer-centered approach, it's not the consumer's job to be literate. It's our job as inventors, as entrepreneurs, to make sure it's easy for them to do things. And then finally is the whole notion of bias and trust. And so this is really important in communities of color, in the LGBTQ community, the idea that we want to make sure that when you have an encounter with a clinician, that you really feel like you can trust them, that you can be honest with them and you can be open. What's interesting about this is that, as you know, there's been a lot of study and talk now about what's happening with AI and how it has inherent bias associated with it because of how it was pulled together. We have to expose that, we have to talk about that, and we have to correct for that. What we wanna make sure that we do in telehealth and technology in general is to ensure that we don't perpetuate the things that don't work. We want to fix the things that don't work. That makes a lot of sense. And you mentioned uh, to me, Telehealth Awareness Week is uh, coming up September 19th to the 25th. Do you mind just sharing a little bit more about what's involved and why you decided to hold one? So we really know that our job is at a legislative and regulatory perspective, but it's also convening a broad community. So there are over 400 organizations that are members of the ATA, including delivery systems, payers, solution providers. And then we have a number of associations and organizations that are partners. We jointly promote a lot of activities that are consistent with each other's policy priorities and goals. So we decided to create Telehealth Awareness Week as a platform for inviting champions and supporters from every sector of healthcare to join together to underscore the growing value of telehealth and its critical role in providing access to safe quality of care to everyone who needs it. And so the platform is engaging patients, providers, payers, and policymakers at every level. Um, I'd encourage your listeners to go to the americantelemed.org and link to our telehealth awareness week because we have a an ability to collect stories and there's nothing like a story to really hit home the importance of what's happening so we have a lot of special events and uh, educational materials we have a lot of founding partners that have been working with us as well as endorsing organizations like the national association of rare diseases als susan coleman i mean just really phenomenal organizations representing the patient voice and then we also have a number of congressional uh, folks who are on our host committee. And these are federal policymakers, and they're just really fantastic in terms of their interest and commitment to Telehealth Awareness Week. That sounds fantastic. I've had, uh, just on a personal note, a lot of positive experiences providing telehealth, and it's been also the same as a patient. So I, I totally resonate with what you're saying. I'm curious, what is your prediction for the use of telehealth in the next couple of years? Do you expect any big changes uh, on the horizon? As you know, it went sky high. It was the hockey stick that every entrepreneur dreams of for the revenue of their company, right? It had been less than 1%, and then it was over 50% of all encounters that were done by telehealth, at least in the Medicare community. 
and that obviously scaled back down. It tamped down. We think it's going to be somewhere between 20 to 30 percent of all encounters that will be done using telehealth because it's more than just for urgent care. It could be used for managing chronic conditions, for engaging, as we talked about before, in mental health services. So we think 20 to 30 percent, depending on the patient, the specialty, the location, it's not for everyone. It's not a panacea, but it's certainly an effective tool, and it's a modality that should be made available to patients and physicians alike. So we're a teaching company. We love to fill knowledge gaps wherever we spot one. Are there any myths or gaps in knowledge about telehealth and virtual care that you'd like to tell us about? Well, there are a lot. I think what would be interesting for your group is there are a couple of things that we hear a lot about. One is that somehow telehealth is more subject to fraud and abuse. Unfortunately, healthcare fraud is not new in the United States and you have bad actors everywhere, but telehealth is not telemarketing. It's really important that we call out that distinction and we don't conflate the two. In the telemarketing scams who are really set up to defraud patients and taxpayers, these are just bad people really trying to take advantage of folks. So um, the cornerstone is to really facilitate illegal kickbacks and bribes from medically unnecessary services and medical equipment. And of course, we're really opposed to that. So the OIG, the Office of the Inspector General has said they have not seen increased fraud and abuse with the pandemic and with the surge in telehealth services. We think that that's uh, important to note. The second is that at the end of December, there was a piece of massive piece of legislation that was passed and one little element had an in-person requirement for a patient um, to have a established exchange in person before they could access telehealth service. That in-person requirement is again wrong. It's just not necessary. And it totally defeats telehealth, if you will, particularly in areas like telemental health. So evidence has demonstrated that telehealth, when used for mental health services, is as effective, if not better than in-person visits. So there's a clear consensus that you can establish relationship with a patient via telehealth visit. Um, Another myth that we think is wrong is the whole notion that you use more services with telehealth. And I think that what we're learning is that technology really can be used to streamline the intake process. So there's a lot there. And then telehealth is more expensive. Again, we're hearing that myth all the time. And again, what our data and what our community shows is that that's not the case. And you can, in fact, use telehealth to close gaps of care. So lots of myths still. We have lots of opportunity for improvement. That's really helpful that you went through those one by one. Um, The cost one is a little perplexing because it seems pretty obvious that it wouldn't be as expensive and and that it would be probably a lot cheaper, but. If you're operating in a fee-for-service environment, then the example that my friend and colleague, Joe Kavidar, who's chair of the ATA board uses, he's a dermatologist practicing derm. So, you know, his staff will look at photos which are sent through whatever mechanism of the patient and decide whether or not the patient should come in person or can be handled um, over the phone for a telehealth visit. And that process of triaging them one way or the other, in some instances, you will have a patient that Joe will consult with and say, actually, I need you to come into the office. So if you bill for both situations, then that's a problem. And uh, so that's why it's considered additive. 
But again, as you said, it probably makes sense that it's not more expensive in the long run. So, and then there's always the, the idea that if you didn't seek care at all and delay treatment because you didn't feel like you could afford it, then that's really bad medicine too. We know prevention is much better than actual treatment. So we think telehealth can help with that. Yeah, that, that makes a lot more sense. And, and I do hope and wonder whether telehealth and telemedicine will help us close the gap with other high-income countries. Because as, as you know, we're, we're, pretty, um, we're doing pretty poorly uh, in terms of health outcomes per dollar spent. Mm-hmm. So maybe that would help to close that gap a little bit. You know, you've had just on a personal note, an incredibly interesting career in healthcare. Do you have any advice for students that are maybe early stages of their healthcare profession, or maybe they're just thinking about the healthcare field in general, you know, any advice in terms of meeting the challenges of this moment within COVID and, and really figuring out how to get into a place like, like where you've kind of found yourself where you're at the forefront of something very exciting. Well, I would say that the most important is to put the patient first and to be very patient focused, very patient driven, recognizing that patients are not a monolith. You have different communities of patients, different types of patients. And so I think that would be an important adage. The idea of realizing that our user experience in healthcare is pretty horrific. It's not designed with the patient in mind. It's not designed with the disabled person in mind. It's not designed with um, a number of different communities in mind. So take it from the patient, whatever perspective that is, and and really build that because chances are there's a huge opportunity to improve life for a lot of people. Well, that sounds like a a fantastic way to end the conversation. Thank you so much uh, for being with us today, Anne. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm Rishi Desai. Thanks for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.